Key Out of Time by Andre Norton, Chapter 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. Key Out of Time by Andre Norton, Chapter 11. Weapon from the Depths. Jazia told her story with an attention to time and detail which amazed Ross and won his admiration for her breed. She had witnessed the death and destruction of all which was her life, and yet she had the wit to note and record mentally, for possible future use, all that she had been able to see of the raiders. They had come out of the sea at dawn, walking with supreme confidence and lack of any fear. Axes flung when they did not reply to the sentry's challenges had never touched them, and a bombardment of heavier missiles had been turned aside. They proved invulnerable to any weapon the rovers had. Men who made suicidal rushes to use sword or battle-axe hand-to-hand had fallen, before they were in striking distance, from spraying tongues of fire from tubes the aliens carried. Rovers were not fearful or easily cowed. But in the end they had fled from the five invaders, gone to ground in their halls, tried to reach their beach ships, only to die as they ran and hid. The slaughter had been remorseless and entire, leaving Jazia in the hill shrine as the only survivor. She had hidden for the rest of the day, seen the killing of a few fugitives, and that night had stolen to the shore, boxed one of the ship's boats, which was in a cove well away from the main harbor of the fairing, heading out to sea in hope of meeting the homing cruisers with their warning. They stayed there on the island, Ross asked. That point of her story puzzled him. If the object of that murderous raid had been only to stir up trouble among the Vakakian rovers, perhaps turning one clan against the other, as he had deduced when he had listened to Torgo's report of similar happenings, then the star men should have withdrawn as soon as their mission was complete, leaving the dead to call for vengeance in the wrong direction. There would be no reason to court discovery of their true identity by lingering. When the boat was a sea, there were still lights in the fairing hall, and they were not our lights, nor did the dead carry them, she said slowly. What have those to fear? They cannot be killed. If they are still there, that we can put to the test, Torgo replied grimly, and a murmur from his officers bore out his determination. And lose all the rest of you? Ross retorted coldly. I have met these before. They can will a man to obey them. Look, you. He slammed his left hand flat on the table. The ridges of scar tissue were plain against his tanned skin. He knew no better way of driving home the dangers of dealing with the star men than providing this graphic example. I held my own hand in fire so that the hurt of it would work against their pull upon my thoughts, against their willing that I come and be easy meat for their butchering. Jazzy's fingers flickered out, smoothed across his old scars lightly as she gazed into his eyes. This too is true, she said slowly for it was also pain of body which kept me from their last snare. They stood by the hall, and I saw Pahad, Okun, Mashai, 
come out to them to be killed as if they were in a hold net and were drawn. And there was that which called me also, so that I would go to them, though I called upon the power of Puka to save. And the answer to that plea came in a strange way, for I fell as I went from the shrine and cut my arm on the rocks. The pain of that hurt was as a knife severing the net. Then I crawled for the wood, and that calling did not come again. If you know so much about them, tell us what weapons we may use to pull them down. That demand came from Vister. Ross shook his head. I do not know. Yet, Jazzy amused, all things which live must also die sooner or later. And it is in my mind that these have also a fate they dread and fear. Perhaps we may find and use it. They came from the sea by a ship then? Ross asked. She shook her head. No, there was no ship. They came walking through the breaking waves as if they had followed some road across the sea bottom. A sub. What is that? Torgold demanded. A type of ship which goes under the waves, not through them, carrying air within its hull for the breathing of the crew. Torgold's eyes narrowed. One of the other captains who had been summoned from the two companion cruisers gave a snort of disbelief. There are no sh ships, he began, to be silenced by a gesture from Torgel. We know of no such ships, the other corrected. But then we know of no such devices as Jazia saw in operation either. How does one war upon these under-the-sea ships, Ross? The Terran hesitated. To describe to men who knew nothing of explosives the classic way of dealing with a sub via depth charges was close to impossible. But he did his best. Among my people, one imprisons in a container a great power. Then the container is dropped near the sub and... And how, broke in the skeptical captain, do you know where such a ship lies? Can you see it through the water? In a way, not see, but hear. There is a machine which makes for the captain of the above-sea ship is a picture of where the sub lies or moves, so that he may follow its course. Then, when he is near enough, he drops the container, and the power breaks free, to also break apart the sub. Yet, the making of such containers and the imprisoning of the power within them, Torgel said, this is the result of a knowledge which is greater than any save the Poana may possess. You do not have it? His conclusion was half statement, half question. No, it took many years and the combined knowledge of many men among my people to make such containers, such a listing device. I do not have it. Why then think of what we do not have? Torgel's return was decisive. What do we have? Ross's head came up. He was listening not to anything in that cabin, but to a sound which had come through the port just behind his head. There, it had come again. He was on his feet. What? Vister's hand hovered over the axe at his belt. Ross saw their gaze centered on him. We may have reinforcements now. The Terran was already on his way to the deck. He hurried to the rail and whistled. The thin, shrill summons he had practiced for weeks before he had ever begun this fantastic adventure. A sleek, 
dark body broke water and the dolphin grin was exposed as Tina Ra answered his call. Though Ross's communication powers with the two fin scouts was very far from Karo's, he caught the message in part and swung around to face the rovers who had crowded after him. We have a way now of learning more about your enemies. A boat! It comes without sail or oars, one of the crew pointed. Ross waved vigorously, but no hand replied from the skiff. Though it came steadily onward, the three cruisers its apparent goal. Karawa, Ross called. Then side by side with Tina Ra were two wet heads, two masked faces showing as the swimmers trod water, Karawa and Loka. Drop ropes, Ross gave that order as if he rather than Torgol commanded, and the captain himself was one of those who moved to obey. Locust came out of the sea first, and as he scrambled over the rail he had his sword ready, looking from Ross to Torgol. The Terran held up empty hands and smiled. No trouble now. Locust snapped up his mask. So the sea maid said the finned ones reported. Yet before, these thirsted for your blood on their blades. What magic have you worked? None. Just the truth has been discovered. Ross reached for Carewa's hand as she came nimbly up the rope, swung her across the rail to the deck, where she stood unmasked, brushing back her hair and looking around with a lively curiosity. Carewa, this is Captain Torgal. Ross introduced the rover commander, who was staring round-eyed at the girl. Carewa is she who swims with the finned ones, and they obey her. Ross gestured to Tina Raw. It is Ta who brings the ship. He asked the Polynesian. She nodded. We followed from the gate. Then Locust came and said that, that she paused and then added, But you do not seem to be in danger. What has happened? Much. Listen, this is important. There is trouble at an island ahead. The Baldies were there. They murdered the kin of these men. The odds are they reached there by some form of sub. Send one of the dolphins to see what is happening and if they are still there. Karwa asked no more questions, but whistled to the dolphin. With a flip of tail, Tina Raw took off. Since they could make no concrete plan of action, the cruiser captains agreed to wait for Tina Raw's report and to cruise well out of sight of the Faring Harbor until it came. This belief in magic, Ross remarked to Karwa, has one advantage. The natives seem able to take in their stride the fact the dolphins will scout for us. They have lived their lives on the sea, for it they must have a vast respect. Perhaps they know, as did my people, that the ocean has many secrets, some of which are never revealed except to the forms of life which claim their homes there. But even if you discover this baldy sub, what will the rovers be able to do about it? I don't know yet. Ross could not tell why he clung to the idea that they could do anything to strike back at the superior alien force. He only knew that he was not yet willing to relinquish the thought that in some way they could. And Ash. Yes, Ash. I don't know. It hurt Ross to admit that. Back there, what really happened at the gate, he asked Kerouac. All at once the dolphins seemed to go crazy. I think for a moment or two they did. You felt nothing? No. 
It was like a fire slashing through the head. Some protective device of the Thuana, I think. A metal defense to which he was not sensitive, which meant that he might be able to breach that gate if none of the others could. But he had to be there first. Suppose, just suppose, Torgo could be persuaded that this attack on a gutted Kion ad was useless. Would the rover commander take them back to the Thuana keep? Or with the dolphins and the skiff, could Ross himself return to make the try? That he could make it on his own, Ross doubted. Excitement and willpower had buoyed him up throughout the past of Bakakian day and night. Now fatigue closed in, past his conditioning and the built-in stimulant of the Terran rations, to enclose him in a groggy haze. He had been warned about this reaction, but that was just another item he had pushed out of his conscious mind. The last thing he remembered now was seeing Karawal move through a fuzzy cloud. Voices argued somewhere below. The force of that argument carried more by tone than by any words Ross could understand. He was pulled sluggishly out of a slumber too deep for any dream to trouble, and lifted heavy eyelids to see Carawal once again. There was a prick in his arm, or was that part of the unreality about him? Four, five, six, she was counting, and Ross found himself joining in. Seven, eight, nine, ten. On reaching ten, he was fully awake, and knew that she had applied the emergency procedure they had been drilled in using, giving him a pep shot. When Ross sat up on the narrow bunk, there was a light in the cabin, and no sign of day outside the porthole. Torgal, Vister, the two other cruiser captains, all there, and Jazia. Ross swung his feet to the deck. A pep shot headache was already beginning, but would wear off soon. There was, however, a concentration of tension in the cabin, and something must have driven Carawal to use the drug. What is it? Carawal fitted the medical kit into the compact carrying case. Tina Ra has returned. There is a sub in the bay. Suppose the rovers could find a way of cutting off the power. The sea maid told us that this ship sets on the bottom of the harbor. If we could board it, began Torgel. Yes, Mr. brought his fist down against the end of the bunk on which the Terran still sat, jarring the dull, drug-borne pain in Ross's head. Take it, then turn it against its crew. There was an eagerness in all rover faces, for that was a game the Vakakian seafarers understood. Take an enemy ship and turn its armament against its companions in a fleet. But that plan would not work out. Ross had a healthy respect for the technical knowledge of the galactic invaders. Of course, he, Carawa, even Locust might be able to reach the sub. Whether they could then board her was an entirely different matter. Now the Polynesian girl shook her head. The broadcast there, Tina Raw rates it as lethal. There are dead fish floating in the bay. He had warning at the reef entrance. Without a shield, there would be no way of getting in. Might as well wish for a death bomb, Ross began, and then stopped. You have thought of something? A shield, Ross repeated her words. It was so wild, this thought of his, 
and one which might have no chance of working. He knew almost nothing about the resources of the invaders. Could that broadcast which protected the sub and perhaps activated the weapons of the invaders ashore be destroyed? A wall of fish, sea life herded in there as a shield. Wild, yes, even so wild it might work. Ross outlined the idea speaking more to Karawa than to the rovers. I do not know, she said doubtfully. That would need many fish, too, many to herd and drive. Not fish, Torgo cut in, sulkers. Sulkers? You have seen the bow carving on this ship. That is a sulkar. Such are larger than a hundred fish. Sulkars driven in, they might even wreck this undersea ship with their weight and anger. And you can find these sulkers nearby? Ross began to take fire. That dragon which had hunted him. The bulk of the thing was well above any other sea life he had seen here. And to his curiosity, he could give testimony. At the spawning reefs. We do not hunt at this season, which is the time of the taking of mates. Now, too, they are easily angered, so they will even attack a cruiser. To slay them at present is a loss, for their skins are not good. But they would be ripe for battle were they to be disturbed. And how would you get them from the spawning reefs to Kainad? That is not too difficult. The reef lies here. Torgo drew lines with the point of his sword on the tabletop. And here is Kyanad. Sulkars have a great hunger at this time. Show them bait, and they will follow. Especially will they follow swimming bait. There were a great many holes in the plan, which had only a halfway chance of working. But the rovers seized upon it with enthusiasm, and so it was set up. Perhaps some two hours later, Ross swam towards the landmass of Kyanad. Gleams of light pricked on the shore well to his left. These must mark the rover settlement. And again the Terran wondered why the invaders had remained there, unless they knew that there had been three cruisers out on a raid, and for some reason they were determined to make a complete mop-up. Carewell moved a little to his right, tall between them. The dolphin supersenses their guide and warning. The swiftest of the cruisers had departed. Locust on board to communicate with Tina Ra in the water, since the male dolphin was the best equipped to provide a fox for Sokar hounds. He was the bait for this weird fishing expedition. No further. Ross's sonic pricked a warning against his body. Through that, he felt a jolt which sent him back away from the bay entrance. On the reef, Kerwa's tap code drew him on a new course. Moments later, they were both out of the water, though the wash of waves over their flippered feet was constant. The rocks among which they crouched were a rough harborage from which they could see the shore as a dark blot. But they were well away from the break in... A one-in-a-million chance, Ross commented as he put up his mask. Was not the whole time agent project founded on just such chances? Karawa asked the right question. This was Ross's kind of venture. Yes, one in a million chances had been pulled off by the time agents. Why, it had been close to those odds against their ever finding what they had first sought along the back trails of time, the wrecked spaceships. 
Just suppose this could be a rehearsal for another attack. If the Sulkars could be made to crack the guard of the Baldies, could they also be used against the Foana Gate? Maybe, but take one fight at a time. They come. Kerwa's fingers gripped Ross's shoulder. Her hand was hard, bar rigid. He could see nothing, hear nothing. That warning must have come from the dolphins. But so far their plan was working. The monsters of the Avakakian Sea were on their way. This concludes the reading of Chapter 11.